Welcome to this edition of the Great Minds Podcast, sponsored by University. We are really honored today to have Raj Sisodia with us. Raj is a, uh, is a scholar. Raj is a professor. He's the Olin Distinguished Professor of Global Business and Whole Foods Market Research Scholar in Conscious Capitalism at Babson College in Massachusetts. He's also the co-founder and co-chairman of Conscious Capitalism. Uh, I've gotten to know Raj over the last couple of years and uh, just found him to be an absolutely fascinating individual. So I am really, really honored to have him with us today. Uh, Raj, welcome. Thank you, Jerry. Very happy to be with you today. So we're, we're going to talk about uh, books. We're going to talk a bit about some of the projects you've been involved in. You, uh, you wrote a book called Conscious Capitalism with John Mackey who is the CEO of Whole Foods. You, uh, and that book actually made it to the New York Times bestseller list, and I think Wall Street Journal bestseller list as well. Uh, and you're about to release a book with Bob Chapman called Everybody Matters, which is really focused on the human side of business. And uh, I, I want to begin by talking a little bit about how you met Bob and what you saw at their company, Barry Waymiller. How, how did you first get in contact with Bob? I was introduced to Bob uh, by a gentleman named Sri Kumar Rao, uh, somebody oh, sure. who I've known and I'm sure you've also met. Yep. Um, I had taken a course with Sri Kumar some years ago called Creativity and Personal Mastery. And he and I share a background. We both did our PhDs at Columbia University in marketing. And both were somewhat dis disillusioned marketing professors as as time went along and uh, found other paths. So Shri Kumar had come in contact with Bob Chapman. I think they met at some event in New York. And subsequent to that, Shri Kumar went to uh, visit some of the facilities uh, in Wisconsin and um, uh, got to know Bob and got to know the story of the company and then contacted me, the thought was that this is a story that needed to be told hmm. and asked me if I would be interested in pursuing that project. Now, at the time, I I'd, I think firms, uh, Conscious Capitalism had just come out and I was involved in another book project and lots of other things. So I said, well, I don't think so. I've got a lot on my plate. And secondly, you know, there are lots of great companies out there that are good examples of Conscious Capitalism, but I can't necessarily devote a year or two to each of them. Right. So there would have to be something unique or, or something that goes beyond in this story relative to what we already think we know. <clears throat> so then I had a conversation with Bob and I told him that and he said, well, why don't you just come and see for yourself and then decide? So I think the f that was probably in March or so of that year. And a few months later, then uh, I did go. Uh, Bob came to uh, Boston and picked me up and... Uh, his team was with him and they did a presentation on the plane. And then we went to Phillips and uh, Green Bay and St. Louis and visited a number of plants and had a number of uh, conversations with groups of people without Bob being present mm -hmm. uh, to learn the story a little bit for myself. So the and, unfiltered truth. Yes, I believe so. And, um, and it was an interesting blend of unionized and non-union you know, workplaces as well and people in different uh, functional areas of these businesses. And as I sat down with these different groups and basically I just wanted to know because as you know, most of these companies were acquired at different points in time. And I would ask them a simple question to get started, which is tell me how it used to be and how it is now. Hmm. 
after the acquisition and uh, and that 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 simple question would elicit so much emotion in many cases tears hmm. as people talked about how their working lives and their personal lives had been uh, prior to that full of uncertainty full of stress full of uh, fear um and and then once the Barry Wemiller acquisition happened how the culture changed pretty quickly and how it became a truly caring environment and how many things people did for each other and uh, you know the amount of true caring and altruism that exists in the culture and there were lots of specific stories to illustrate that so um so by the end of two days having heard those stories and also having reflected on what what was going on at Barry Wemiller and trying to connect it back to conscious capitalism i realized that it did advance our understanding of what's possible so for those who are not familiar with Barry Waymiller, it's a um, <clears throat> it's a St. Louis-based company. It is uh, about $2.2 billion in revenue a year. It is privately held, and it has done uh, right around 80 acquisitions. So it acquires multiple companies every year, and it is, it's not the sexy stuff, right? It's not, uh, it, it's not internet technology companies. It's primarily um, manufacturing. And and so you don't you don't think of of uh, manufacturing, especially sort of old kind of manufacturing, as uh, being the hotbed mm-hmm. of people centric leadership. So I, I, the, I, when I first went there, that that's what caught my attention. Is I yes. again, some of these are union shops, some of these are non union shops. You wouldn't think this is a this should be a small little company with a pool table somewhere in Seattle, right? Yeah. This shouldn't be a a company located in Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, that makes toilet paper. Uh, It's quite amazing what they do. So did you see similar things? Yeah, I did. So they make the machines that make toilet paper, right? They don't actually make the toilet paper. And machines that make cardboard boxes and so forth. So again, relatively mundane but necessary things. And as I thought about how this fit into the conscious capitalism framing, which is that there are four uh, fundamental pillars or tenets. And one of them is a higher purpose. And then we have stakeholder integration and conscious leadership and and, uh, caring cultures. And as I thought about the purpose piece, we had always uh, thought of that in terms of the product or service that you're engaged in providing Mm -hmm. and the impact that that has on the world and on customers especially. And that that would give you a higher purpose if you're doing something that really met a real need in a compelling way. What I found here was that uh, the purpose really is not seen as uh, embedded in the products because the products are, as I said, relatively mundane, but the purpose is embedded in the people. So they define their purpose very explicitly as uh, the impact or measuring success by the impact we have on the lives of people. So the people are the purpose and their well-being, their flourishing, the well-being of their families and their communities all of those are inherently important. In fact, in many ways, the primary reason why these acquisitions occur and why this company exists. So that was an interesting thought that you could have a people-centered purpose even if you weren't able to find a product-centered purpose. And ultimately, that that trumps all mm-hmm. because uh, you know people are the ultimate um, you know the purpose. I think it truly is that, as Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines has said, the business of business is people. Right. And I think we lose sight of that, you know, and uh, it's become just about the numbers and the money. And so I think that was, uh, to me, a compelling 
uh, insight. And it, what it did also for us was it took this idea of conscious capitalism and made it far more universal because every business in the world has people. So even if you can't, you're producing something mundane, relatively speaking, there's not a lot of uh, uh, innovation and cutting-edge technology or anything else in that. Uh, you can still be a conscious business by focusing on the flourishing of the people. So it took that idea of, of purpose and made it broader and, and richer and, and taught us that there were two kinds of purpose that are possible and ideally you want both. Mm-hmm. But if you could only have one, then the people-centered purpose has to trump, you know, product-centered purpose. The second was the uh, concept of leadership, which we had thought about in terms of the impact that leaders have on people while they are at work. Uh, so how engaged they are, how how much uh, <clears throat> empowerment uh, they have, uh, how much freedom, etc., uh, and caring and all the you know the cultural elements as well. But we hadn't thought about the impact of leadership on people's lives outside of work. And that to me was also a compelling aspect of this story is that there's a conscious realization that the way we lead impacts the way people live mm-hmm. and that it impacts how they can be as, as parents, as spouses, as community members, etc. Because there is a very, very strong phenomenon of emotional contagion you know, that the way that you go home, the state of mind and uh, state of heart is going to affect other people. Right. And so th- that recognition, all of these came to Barry Vimmler and Bob Chapman through a series of awakenings, as you know. Uh, that recognition also is a very powerful one because it redefines leadership as a stewardship of the lives entrusted to you. And it's not just about figuring out how to get the most out of people. Right. Right, So I think that was a compelling thing as well. It took the idea of leadership and deepened it. So for those two reasons and just the sheer power of the story and the context of the story in the industrial Midwest for the most part uh, made it to me very compelling that this is in fact uh, a book that would advance our our understanding and it is a story that needs to be told. So before we go on to the book, I want to talk a bit about you. Your your background is interesting. You have uh, an electrical engineer, uh, engineering degree. So you're an electrical engineer. You went on to do an MBA, and then you did a PhD in marketing, of all things. What in the world led you to care about making people first? What What led you to consider... Yeah. Conscious capitalism. I, I think the people listening to this need to know a little bit about what drives you and, and why this matters to you. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, looking back, you can connect some dots. But uh, at the time, what you do is make the most practical choice available to you. or from Among the, the uh, choices available to you, you choose the most practical option. So I grew up in India in the, in the 70s. And when I graduated high school in 1974, you know, this was a semi-socialist, stagnant economy, very, very little happening in India in those days. Mm -hmm. So unlike today, where there are lots and lots of options in India, those days it was very, very limited. So um, if you happen to be decent in math and science, the path was engineering. And if you were good in biology and science, you went into medicine. And if you weren't good in either of those, then God help you, and you got a Bachelor of Arts in something. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you end up with a civil service job or something. Right. So I ended up going for engineering, but I had no passion for engineering, mm. really. If somebody had asked me, and in those days nobody did ask these kinds of questions, like what is 
what's your passion you know right. what's what, what would really excite you what would be your purpose if somebody had asked me i might have said something like journalism i mean i enjoyed mm-hmm. writing i read a lot and i did enjoy writing and that was something that inherently appealed to me but wasn't seen as a practical choice so i got, i i did engineering and uh, uh after that i started working as an engineer and so this was 79 and at that point in india and probably even true today uh salaries of course were extremely low and if you did an mba your salary would double essentially mm-hmm. relative to what you made as an engineer so that made it a no brainer and of course sure. there were very very few school <clears throat> good business schools in those days as there were very few engineering schools so if you got into one of those it was almost a guaranteed path to uh, you know getting a decent job and so mm-hmm. forth plus you got to work in an air conditioned office for the most part which was right. not not, hey. a, not a trivial thing you and know and, i've uh, been in india so i <laughs> i have an appreciation for what you're yeah, saying yeah so after being in a factory in mumbai oh boy you know, that was so i got into that and then um, you know why did i choose marketing well i did not like finance and this kind of those were the two choices you know hmm. uh, pretty much so i chose marketing and it seemed interesting enough and uh, and then i was all set to start working for a consulting company i had a job and one day i saw a bunch of my friends were dressed up and look uh, getting ready to go somewhere on a holiday on a saturday i think it was uh, when i came down for breakfast in the uh, in the dorm that i lived in and i asked them where are you going they said we're going to the us information agency to pick up uh, gmat applications gmat being the exam you give for mba yeah. admissions and i said we're already doing our mba why do you need gmat applications I said oh we're going to apply for a phd in business i said oh you can do a phd in business mm-hmm. i didn't know that <laughs> mm-hmm. so i give me 5 minutes you know i'll i'll change quickly and i'll come with you guys and so i did and you know so that's how life changes directions right, right? so interestingly that was a group of about 10 or 12 people that went that day and i'm the only one who ended up coming to the us to get a phd in business hmm. from that group <clears throat> whatever reasons right yep and so that that happened so then i came and uh, started my phd at columbia and i got a full scholarship etc so um and i did that and uh, again i did it purely as something that would lead to a job and it wasn't anything that was uh, fueled by and that was marketing uh, yeah so it wasn't fueled by a deeper purpose or a real passion for either for marketing or even for teaching mm-hmm. right again it was just seen as a pragmatic practical thing to do so, you know it's a full scholarship you'll get a decent job at the end of that so that's that's how i uh, took that and then i started teaching at boston university in 85 and um, you know i enjoyed aspects of it but gradually i started to <clears throat> i started to question the real overall value to society of what i was doing of marketing in uh, of marketing in, in general and business overall i mean the narrative around business was something that inherently rubbed me the wrong way a bit mm-hmm. you know that it was a system that was purely based upon economic or self interest uh that it was a world in which you know nice guys finish last and only the paranoid survive and mm-hmm. it's a dog eat dog world and it's not personal you know all the narrative and the clichés about business which reflect the mindset uh it inherently uh you know went against my grain because growing up i was a very idealistic kid mm-hmm. and i always wanted things to be a certain way and i i was told by my father and others that you know you're too idealistic the world doesn't operate that way and you have to uh you know get rid of all of these ideas and toughen up in that sense so i suppressed all of those idealistic instincts but they were always there 
right? To question why is it that uh, you know things have to be this way? Why can't businesses operate you know, with caring and so forth? And so, at, at your heart, you're an idealistic yes. poet, uh, a humanistic poet who happens to be an electrical engineer, yes, and exactly. have a PhD in marketing. <laughs> Got it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so then, uh, you know, I started questioning my own profession a little bit. I, I started to look into marketing ethics. I mean, you know, coming into the U.S., especially coming from a semi-socialist economy like India, you cannot help but notice the overwhelming noise and uh, impact of marketing in this country, right? I mean, at that time, I think the U.S. was 5% of the world's population and 50% of the world's marketing happened here. Right. <clears throat> Today, it might be 25%, but it's still a lot, right? It's like 1,500 ads a day and Lots and lots of gimmickry and also a lot of uh, misleading, exaggerated claims, over-promising, under-delivering, and lots and lots of uh, borderline unethical practices. And in some cases, clearly unethical practices. Normal people call that lying. Yeah. Yeah. And so I started to feel, you know, so I I did part of my research then was around marketing ethics. And then over time became uh, focused on marketing efficiency and effectiveness, just looking at how much are we spending and what are we getting. Mm-hmm. And we had documented that over time, spending had gone up dramatically <clears throat> to the tune of a trillion dollars a year in 2007. And meanwhile, as spending had risen, customer loyalty and trust had fallen at the same time mm-hmm. overall on the in the aggregate. So, you know, that, if you just look at just that, you say, wow, there's something happening in this economy. We're sending more and more money towards these activities that are yielding fewer and fewer positive outcomes for companies, right, in terms of customer loyalty and trust. Part of it is just hyper-competition and kind of an arms race of, you know, one company is advertising this much or the competitor has to advertise even more and so forth. Um, So, you know, I documented all of that. I did a study on the image of marketing showing that 85% of Americans have a negative view of marketing. Right? uh, You say the word marketing, it means, you know, what are the words that come to mind? It's ploy, it's gimmick, it's rip-off, you know, it's not real, it's uh, inauthentic, it's style over substance, etc., etc. Right. So with all of that angst around this and having conclusively made the case that there was a crisis in marketing, we also did a book called Does Marketing Need Reform? And a, and a, and a conference with that title as well. And we got lots of people's uh, contributions around those ideas. So all of that came came to a head around 2005, after 10, 10, 15 years of that kind of work. And at that point, I was at a turning point because I, I started a couple of book projects which were still kind of wallowing in the negative, I would say. Mm-hmm. And one of them is still very timely. One of them was called Drugs Are Us. It was about pharmaceutical marketing, which is a scandal and, a, you know, it's just a horrible, um, you know, set of practices that drug companies are engaged in that are trying to get people to use drugs that they don't need and that can be harmful to them. So um, I started a book called Drugs Are Us, which was about unethical marketing in pharmaceuticals, where almost all the leading companies, you know, had have paid hundred, multi-hundred million dollar fines for unethical marketing, for promoting drugs to people who don't need them, for bribing doctors, you know, for all kinds of stuff, you know. And I had a special needs son, so that was somewhat personal to me as well because he had he had been affected by a lot of those practices. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I found that the former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine was writing a similar book, and I was trying to get her to be my co-author, but she already had almost finished her book. So I abandoned that. I started another project that, for a while, the working title it was Marketing Malpractices as a book. 
And then I was calling it the shame of marketing, which is a phrase used by Peter Drucker to describe the consumer movement in America. Mm. He said, that is the shame of marketing. If marketers are doing their job, which is to look after the well-being of customers, you know, why would customers need to organize themselves? So I was going to use that as a framing to make the case in a broader way that marketing is fundamentally broken. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I received uh, what I think was probably the most <clears throat> significant advice I got from my mentor, uh, Jack Sheth, who's at Emory University. And he and I had done a bunch of books and other things together. <clears throat> he said, you know, Raj, in this country, people want to hear about the solution and not about the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about uh, the problem for 10 years so let's think about a solution. And so that simple insight turned the whole thing around for me because I, I just took that book project and book proposal and reframed it as in search of marketing excellence. Saying that, okay, we believe most companies spend too much and get too little. Right? Yeah, suddenly so, you have a book I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's a big deal. Right. So uh, most companies spend too much and get too little. And likewise, you know, customers and society don't benefit either. So what's the opposite of that? We don't spend a huge amount of money on marketing, and yet we have customer loyalty and trust that's extremely high, right? So how does that happen? Mm-hmm. So that was how we defined marketing excellence, and we set out to find companies that uh, fit those criteria. And with that simple question, we actually uncovered a much richer set of practices because we found that for uh, companies uh, where that was true, where Whole Foods was one of the first companies we found at the time spending 90% less on marketing than the industry average. Um, and yet, of course, had very loyal customers. We found that in those companies, generally speaking, their employees were also equally loyal and trusting. So it wasn't just about customers. And beyond that, we found the suppliers were in long-term, stable, mutually beneficial partnerships with these companies. Communities really welcomed and embraced them Right. And um, so, you know, it, it turned out that they were embedded in a stakeholder universe. So they, they, they took care of all of the stakeholders, not just customers. Mm-hmm. Right? And they treated all of them the way customers should be treated. You try to understand what they need and provide it to them. Right. So <clears throat> that was one insight that uh, to be efficient and effective in marketing, you are really were better off being stakeholder oriented and having that more holistic view of the business. But as we dug further into these companies, we found that each of them seemed to be driven by a passion or a purpose that they were trying to do something differently than the industry overall or most of their competitors were doing. So Whole Foods was not just another grocery store. They had a real reason for being. So these were, these were like missions with a business, not businesses with a mission. How, let's see, in 2005, 2006, right in this period, yeah. um, Whole Foods is nowhere near at that period what it is now. Yes, but it was still a pretty well-known company yep. and uh, growing rapidly and, yep. and, and um, very successful. Right. right. And with a very um, visible CEO, John Mackey, who had engaged in a debate with Milton Friedman <laughs> in the pages of Reason Magazine, which right. is fascinating, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> because they talked about Milton Friedman's famous article from 1970 that the only social responsibility of business is to maximize profits right. while staying within the law. And John Mackey was arguing against that. And he said, no, we have a broader responsibility and a broader purpose. And, and ultimately, <clears throat> because he was able to show Friedman that our way of operating actually has been far more successful 
than the industry or even other retailers in, in, in any industry. You know, Whole Foods was one of the highest performing companies in the country at the time. And so at that point, Milton Friedman said, okay, in that case, I have no problem with this because you're still maximizing profits. And John said, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to maximize anything. I'm just trying to create value for everybody. And when we do that, all of these things happen. And But he said, I know the fact that we treat people well and give them, give them good benefits that leads to delighted customers and ultimately happy investors. But I would do it even if that were not the case. Because mm-hmm. I don't view that as a means to an end. I think right. that's an end to end in itself. You know? So that was a, a powerful argument. So, so going back, we discovered the sense of purpose and passion in these companies. And so that was the second pillar. So stakeholders, purpose, and then we found the leaders like John and others were very different. They were very much uh, driven by purpose and by service to people. And they were not your, you know, command and control imperial style CEOs that you tend to see a lot, right. which tend to uh, be focused or driven by power and driven a lot by personal enrichment. Right? This was a time when we had CEOs becoming billionaires, literally. You know, these are not founders of companies, right. but no. uh, hired CEOs like Michael Eisner and Jack Welch and others. Yeah. You know, extraordinary amounts of money being paid to CEOs simply for raising stock prices uh, with with uncertain implications for the longer term. Right. And then, of course, the last thing we found was that the cultures of these companies were different. You know, there was a lot of uh, openness, transparency, but a lot of fun and also trust and caring. And unlike the uh, culture you find at a typical company where there's a great amount of fear and stress. Right. You didn't. Uh, you didn't learn. Tr- you didn't take trust and caring in your MBA uh, program. I'm I imagine. don't think those words showed up anywhere. No, no. I don't think so either. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, um, so we found these four these these patterns, and then we said, "Wow!" And so then we said, "Let's look for more companies like that." So that book ultimately ended up being firms of endearment, right? Companies that were loved essentially by everybody. And we did the financial analysis at the end of that process, not at the beginning. So we didn't use financial criteria. Other than these are going concerns. In other words, they're not under the threat of bankruptcy. Right. But we didn't look at stock price or growth rate or profitability. At the end of that, when we had selected what we thought was a pretty good set of representative companies, we had 28 in all, 18 of which were publicly traded. We said, okay, now let's look at their financial performance over the last uh, five years, three years, and 10 years and see how they did. And we wrote down our expectations ahead of time. We think because they're paying their people well, providing better benefits, taking care of customers better, they have, they're paying their suppliers generally higher, their suppliers are profitable, they're not squeezing them, they're investing in the community, investing in the environment, paying taxes at a higher rate. We said, well, maybe returns to investors are modest or you know good and probably better than average, but nothing phenomenal because that's not their goal. They're not trying to maximize that. It can't be. Right. So if you're not trying to maximize something, how can that thing be high, right? As it turned out that these companies actually were outperforming the market dramatically. Uh, it was a nine to one ratio over a 10 year period for that set of 18 companies. Wow. Right. And um, so that gave us, you know, pause. We said, wow, there's something very compelling going on here. You know, this is exceeding anything we would have expected because we still had a bit of that zero sum sure. mindset, you know, that you have to take from here to, you know, that you have to balance it between different stakeholders and so forth. What we hadn't fully appreciated was the enormous value creating potential of business that it can, it's the ultimate win-win game in this world. But that's, that's, I mean, that's the whole foundation for the success of capitalism. Well, it, it, it opened up the passion and creativity <clears throat> of the people involved. You, you cared right. for them and turns right. out if you care for them, they care for you 
and right, and that leads to innovation, right? Customer care, and all the virtuous cycle gets set into motion. Right? So that became that took a strong message and made it even more powerful and compelling. And said, this is not a trade-off. This is not a choice between being nice and good for the world versus making a lot of money. This is says, yeah, it's you know, making money is a good thing for society. Profits are essential. Creating that kind of wealth is needed. Uh, but it matters greatly how you make the money. And then these companies do it in a way that has a spectrum of other positive effects. Not, you know, you don't pay the price elsewhere for the fact that you're making money through the business. So let's, let's dive into this a bit. Um, yesterday, Pope Francis, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, spoke before a joint session of Congress. And <clears throat> today, so everybody knows when we're recording this, He's actually speaking to the United Nations, to the largest gathering of presidents and prime ministers and heads of state ever assembled at the UN. And everyone is trying to claim him as their spokesman from every political spectrum. There are uh, pro-free market people that are uh, very nervous. There are socialists that are very excited. There are what, what do you hear? I mean, the the thing that you're describing is still free market economics. It's still yes. I'm not a big fan, actually, of the word capitalism, but yeah. it's 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 still capitalism. Um, yes. What are you hearing? What what? How do you react to this? React to what the Pope is saying? Yeah. Well, again, I have to read in more detail what exactly he's saying about this, but you know, I think the answer to all of this is not a curtailment of of freedom. And, and making businesses, um, you know, in, in one extreme, uh, as happened in India and as now the new Labour Party leader in the UK is talking right. about renationalizing banks and railways. <laughs> it's not about bringing the heavy hand of government. that's got such a strong history of Yeah, success, and that doesn't right? work. No, that doesn't work. Yeah. And so, you know, we want to keep this rooted in freedom, but freedom and, and then people making more conscious choices uh, to operate in a, in a, in a, in a way that's... Uh, takes into account the impact you have on everybody's lives. You know, so I think we want to preserve the power of voluntary exchange and voluntary decision-making that's at the heart of this. But then within that, figure out a way that people start to make better decisions. Right. And when we do that, then we can continue to uh, enjoy the benefits of this extraordinary system without paying some of the costs associated with it. In other words, those are costs that don't have to be incurred in the way that we've become accustomed to. Yeah. We don't have to have these negative side effects, so-called, because there is no such thing as a side effect. We do business in a certain way, it has a certain set of effects. We right. try to change the way we do business, it will have a different set of effects. And it is possible to have a spectrum of positive effects uh, through business. So I think, yes, bringing, caring, uh, to me, the the greatest... Uh, gap that has existed in the whole capitalist structure is that it was really built on one pillar and that pillar is self-interest mm-hmm. right that humans want to pursue their self-interest and adam smith's so adam wealth smith of nations. plus we we have to add a little bit to that well right so adam smith's you know that book uh, wealth of nations was largely about uh, pursuing your self-interest as you see it and that ultimately creating the conditions in a market where most needs get met. But as you well know, there was another book that he wrote sure. called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. So right. the other dimension of human beings is caring. And that's a need, in fact, that we have, the need to care, which is as powerful and can be more powerful, actually, and then self-interest. In many cases, people will sacrifice self-interest 
because of the need to care. And had we incorporated that into the foundations of, of thinking about capitalism, I think we would have had a very different history the last 200 years mm-hmm. because businesses would not have gradually become instruments of exploitation of people, of, uh, of causing great misery and suffering for people working in horrific conditions, right? And I remember reading about Andrew Carnegie and the steel industry in the yeah. U.S. And at some point, in order to increase their profits, because Carnegie wanted to uh, overtake Rockefeller as the richest person in America, you know, they said, okay, well, how do we do that? Well, the biggest cost is labor. So they went to a six-day work week, 12 hours a day, and they lowered wages all at the same time. Right. right? And then at some point after that, I mean, people were literally falling down and collapsing on the job. 10 or 11% of steel workers were dying every year. Oh, yeah. On the job, right? Right. And so Actually, naturally, in, in their shifts. Yeah. Yes. And the response, as they started agitating um, for, for better working conditions, the response was to bring out this private army, the Pinkertons. Right which was used to suppress, you know, this was an army that was larger than the U.S. Army and had more guns. And you could hire them to come and uh, put down these kinds of things, you know. People were literally shot dead and, and you know, dozens were wounded. And it's amazing that it never occurred to these guys to actually listen and and think, you know, that life, that is a terrible life that we're providing for people. Yeah, so it just, I mean, the human element just disappeared somehow, right? And yeah. became all, it became essentially amoral. And and that, I think that led to militant mm-hmm. unionism, which led sure. to Marxism, which led to the whole world getting divided up right. and extraordinary amounts of suffering that occurred in the last century. I think a lot of that could have been avoided had business been conceptualized and practiced in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, so a moral ethical foundation for business was really lacking that regard and even a form of enlightened self-interest really right which is what this is about you know? so i do think that we need to reform capitalism but we don't need to do it by bringing back socialism we do need to do it by elevating it in its consciousness right to its to its to its ultimate purpose which is to yeah. the good of the human being yeah it, right yeah um let's talk a bit about bob's book and your book and how this came about what was the process uh what you learn as you went through it and uh and and what are the things some of the things that you hope people take away from it yeah so the book was um um you know i yeah i struggled for a bit in terms of how to tell the story because i do believe that uh, storytelling is a powerful way to communicate a message so do we yeah that's the whole point of our company right so we didn't want to just take the final learnings and and put that into the book and say, here's what you need to do. You know, there's lots of those kinds of things out there. Right. So I felt that the story and the unfolding of of, uh, of the journey had to be communicated. And so I ultimately settled on a model for the book, which parallels uh, one of the most powerful books that I've ever read. I think the most powerful, uh, most impactful book is Man's Search for Meaning sure. by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. Um, And that book is divided into two parts. The first part is his experiences in a concentration camp in Auschwitz and other places Mm -hmm. where he was imprisoned. Um, And the second part is logotherapy in a nutshell. So his philosophy of how do you lead a happier life by discovering meaning and purpose, Mm -hmm. which he called logotherapy. So the second part essentially describes the theory. The first part describes in a way how he arrived at many of those insights. And the experiences that that shaped him along the way, 
right <clears throat> so i decided to make the book somewhat like that so the first half of the book is the journey it really takes bob from uh a kid just starting out right. in st louis uh struggling as a student not very motivated uh eventually ending up in business school and then eventually ending up uh working at this company that his father had somewhat accidentally acquired as an and and bob's working in a background training as an accountant with an mba that's right yeah he did an accounting <clears throat> and he worked for one of the uh auditing firms um so he ended up his father brought him in to help him basically run this uh struggling almost bankrupt operation called Barry Wemmiller which was almost 100 years old by that time i think it was yeah it was uh, formed in founded in 1885 and so he came in and did a variety of different things and then over time and then suddenly his father died when he was 29 his father was just 60 and he was forced to take over this company and so it was really um trial by fire in many ways and then within weeks the bank pulled all their loans and you know so they went through a lot of those kinds of struggles and over time bob you know applying what he had learned in business school what he had learned on the job more of the traditional ways of dealing with these kinds of situations managed to get the business somewhat stabilized you know starting to grow in certain respects and then they had multiple crises along the way um so that that was kind of the first uh, i would say 25 years or so of uh, or 22 years i think until 1997 from 75 when he became ceo and then the story starts uh becoming uh deeper and richer because he starts gradually having some of these awakenings right right so the arc of that first half of the book is really i would say more of that hero's journey the classic joseph campbell right type of frame you know where you start out living life and eventually it seems inauthentic to you right. and you start to then some there's struggle. some irritant and you're trying to figure yeah, out what it is yeah something happens and then you you embark on this different path and along the way you encounter many obstacles and so forth and challenges and but then you ultimately come back having conquered all of those come back with this great insight the elixir right and that's you bring that back now to the world as something that you have you have discovered and earned and now you can share and so that's what the first half of the book tries to do to say what what was that journey what was the elixir what was the challenges you know etc yep. and the awakenings that he had along the way and so and then the second half of the book basically says okay having learned all of this and the experience that Barry Wimler had and Bob how would you apply this in your company what are the key elements that we have distilled out of all of this and with this process you know with um Barry Wemmiller the uh, the great thing is that they have thought a lot about these things and they've actually created a lot of courses in their own university in order to capture and then to teach these things to uh, to leaders uh, to uh, to convey a sense of what this culture is about and how we can uh, keep it going and as we keep acquiring new companies how do we transform their cultures and so forth so they've had a lot of uh, thinking and work already on that so it was a matter in some cases of capturing what they have already done right and distilling it down and it, making it palatable right. for right okay what what do you hope the what do you hope the book will accomplish i mean I, I, when you think about the person reading it is is it the ceo reading it is it the mba student reading it is is yeah. it the you know where do you hope to see this create and cause change in the system Yeah and I do think that this is a book that has broad uh, applicability you know it does certainly 
have a lot of value for CEOs because it is very practical and hands-on in terms of uh, what what you should do and how you can do it. Uh, but it also, I think, has important lessons for anybody who aspires to leadership of any kind. And certainly MBA students would fall into that. Um, the recognition, just the title itself, the fact that everybody matters to right. reconnect us to the reality that people are at the heart of business. And if you have a business that is touching people's lives in negative ways, that that is not acceptable. And ultimately, that's not the way to succeed in the long term either. Uh, so I think anybody who has aspirations to leadership, whether it be in business or in other kinds of organizations, um, I think would benefit from the lessons that are at the heart of this. Because ultimately, this is about stewardship. It's about caring. Bob derives a lot of his inspiration and insights in leadership from uh, his role as a parent. Right. And he equates to a large degree parenting and leadership. And to that extent, you know, the lessons can flow the other direction as well from this book back into people's lives, you know, in terms of uh, how do you be a good steward of the lives of your children. And so I think it could help people in, in a variety of different ways because it does cover both the personal and the professional Aspects. I, I think, uh, and, and Bob and I have talked about this, I think you and I and Bob have talked about this, uh, part of my fear of, the, of, of people hearing his story is they say, that sounds nice, that sounds cute, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that worked for you. There's no possible way that uh, having this as the core base of my business could work. Because I'm rough and tumble, I'm in a different uh, market, it, it, this doesn't apply to me. Um, or just, that's really nice, but that's not how... There, there was a guy that <clears throat> I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, Daniel Drew, who uh, uh, founded Drew University and so on and was an industrialist. And, and, and actually a guy that was fairly serious about his faith. And, uh, you know, he, he donated money and he gave, but he said, I, I, uh, I never trusted any man that that uh, confused business with anything else. He said sentiment and family and all that stuff's fine for Sunday afternoon. But mm-hmm. when, uh, when Monday morning rolls around, um, it is kill or be killed and oh, never get those two confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, that's what, that's what I hated about the world of business, that that kind of thinking and that kind of language, you know, that why do you have to be filled with dread? on Sunday night why do we have to say yeah. you know thank god it's friday and heart attacks have to go up monday morning and people are literally being killed i think it was i think know. it was drew that said if the sunday afternoon met the monday afternoon if the sunday afternoon me met the monday afternoon me we wouldn't recognize each other wow i see that's just a split being right that's yeah. almost schizophrenic i mean yeah. that's so i think that's to hold that up and that for long has been held up as the the model right Right, that it's not personal; it's business, etc. But I think you, you've been. I mean, I've obviously read the book and drafts of it. Um, and thank you for giving me a quote, by the way. I have oh, that. Sure, I'm hang sure. that on the wall. Uh, but it, it, uh, I, I think that the inclusion of the finances of Barry Waymiller mm-hmm. are an important part because you are just as you did with firms of endearment. You are demonstrating. Now, this is one company, but. You are demonstrating that the financial model here is not only viable, but also quite successful. Again, you, you have to yes. avoid that means to an end thing, right? Because you quickly yes. do that. And right. if this becomes fashionable and trendy for a while and it fades away, ultimately it hasn't been successful. 
Um, but but the reality is that the financial results do support that this is not only the right way to operate, yes. but a an effective way to operate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, Barry Wimler's performance is extraordinary. It's a compounded growth rate, if I recall, of 16% a year for 20 plus years. Right. In their, you know, they have a valuation, it's a private company, but they still have a, a formal valuation process for their stock and people do buy and sell that stock uh, using economic value added. So yeah, they have, and, and they have grown extremely well. And if you look at the trajectory of that, as they started to bring in more and more of these human elements, their financial performance accelerated to an even greater degree. Mm-hmm. Right? So it was, it's almost like a, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 it was kind of growing steadily until 2000, but it went from literally from 20 million to 100 million in that, I think 200 million actually, in that 25 year period. And from then it's gone to 2 billion right. in the last 15 years. Right. So the growth rate has accelerated, you know, and it's profitable growth as well. And the other, but, but, but the, to me, the even more important part of that is that these are companies that were dying in many cases. Right. And these yeah, were therefore the acquisitions yeah. were not, uh, again, were not the high tech, uh, high flyers. Yeah. These are companies he, that were failing. Exactly. In many cases and, and, and struggling, uh, and, and perhaps going under. Right. And if you think about the consequences for those families and those communities, they were de- devastating. I was a member in Phillips, Wisconsin, a small town of 1500 people. And they employ, I believe, 500 people in that town. Wow. And at one point, the mayor of that little town pointed to Bob Chapman and he said, that man saved our town. Because think about 500 people working and their families and others. I mean, everything in that town runs around this this business. That's the death of a town. So this would disappear from the map, essentially. It would be a ghost town. And that is a large part of what motivates Bob. He said, I want to give these people a future. I want, and I don't want this thing to disappear. And of course, he has to believe that he can do it and that it has some degree of fit with what they're doing in their business. He doesn't acquire just any business. Right. It has to fit in with their overall uh, structure and strategy. But a lot of things do. And, um, you know, so one of the people used a, a, an interesting uh, phrasing uh, describing how it was when they were struggling, dying, having su- sequential layoffs you know, trying to get the company desperately on some kind of financial footing. And at some point they decided they had to sell. They they just couldn't do it, the, mm-hmm. the, the family that owned it. And a bunch of buyers were hovering around the company. So they were like vultures that were circling around the company, you know, seeing what they can pick up and, you know, essentially looking to see what they can salvage. Right. Right. What, how can they sell the machines, the land, the buildings, whatever. It was not really about the people. And they said, at the same time, Bob was also circling that business. And by that time, he had a reputation, right? That's when Barry Wimler acquired a company or something, would happen. And he said, but Bob was circling this more like a, like a guardian angel, you know, to say, how can we help these people uh, have a future again? And he wasn't circling it from that same standpoint of what can I get out of this thing? Yeah, no sharp beak and claws. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a powerful, Thing. And then he comes in and he tells people, we're not going to lay off anybody. You know, we have, we're going to, I think the phrasing that he used for one of those companies, which had already sent some of its manufacturing to Brazil because they couldn't compete here on wages. And he said, we're going to bring that Brazil manufacturing plant back here. Hmm. You know, we're going to uninstall all of that machinery and bring it right back here. He said, we're going to pay you fairly. We're going to treat people superbly and we're going to compete globally. 
right here in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Yeah, I think that mindset, which is yeah. that you know, it doesn't have to be a race to the bottom of searching for the lowest possible wage location in the world and just everybody, you know, <laughs> like scurrying from one mm-hmm. place to another in search of lower wages. Right. That, yeah, we can put down roots here and we can be committed to the long term to say that, yeah, you will have a future here and we're going to figure out how to make it work together. Yeah, that's a phenomenal story. So, Raj, one of the things we, we do in these podcasts, because Innoversity is, at the end of the day, a storytelling company. It's what we do. We tell other people's stories, and we uh, enjoy the opportunity to tell your story. <clears throat> um, I like to ask at the end of this, um, what is your favorite story? Well, let me go back to conscious capitalism then. I think, to me, one of the best stories there was you know when Whole Foods was first starting out, they were one store operation in Austin, Texas, and very successful right off the bat because people loved the culture, people loved the the products, you know, they loved working there. You know, the whole thing was was already a microcosm of what it became. Um, and they had started by uh, borrowing about forty thousand dollars, I think, from friends and family, and um, were as I said, very quickly successful. But then there was a flood that happened. In Austin, the Memorial Day flood of 1980, I think it was. Mm. Yeah, well, I think the biggest flood in 50 or 75 years. And it caused a lot of devastation. I think about 10 people were killed. Uh, and where the store was located, the waters were about seven feet high, oh. right? Which means that it pretty much wiped out everything. Everything in the store yeah, was, was devastated. And if you looked at scenes afterwards. I mean, it looked like a tsunami had come through, right? It was completely destroyed. All the inventory, all the equipment, the freezer cases, etc., cash registers, all gone. And they had no insurance for any of this stuff. And they had no other warehouse where they had inventory. I mean, all the inventory was right there. Everything they had was right there and it was all destroyed. So the next morning when their waters finally recede and they come there to look at the devastation and some of the employees had come, to see, oh my God, this is the end. There's no way we're going to survive this. Because again, as I said, no insurance, right? no savings, no nothing, right? Nothing in the bank. <clears throat> and so the owners, the founders knew that, the employees could sense that, some of them were crying, you know, because this was a job that they truly loved. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the next thing they see, some of their regular customers start showing up at the store. Of course, it was all in the news, what had happened, everybody knew what was going on. And they weren't obviously looking to shop, but they were coming there in their work clothes, you know, carrying buckets and mops and shovels and whatever tools they could find. Wow. From their own garages and saying, come on, guys, let's let's clean it up. Right? We're, mm-hmm. we're going to get through this. <laughs> Not saying, you know, you're, are you, are you, when, when do you think you will open? But saying, we are going to get through this. And, you know, that was just such a... Uh, a shock to the employees and to the funnel. Like, wow, you've done really something care. right. People really care, right? So, literally, for the next three weeks, you know, so that this gave them heart, right? This gave them a sense of hope that, oh, maybe, maybe we can survive this, you know? Right. But let's clean it up anyway. Well, it's better than standing around moping. So, literally, shoulder to shoulder with their people from their community and customers, the employees worked. And the, the, uh, the owners of the company, John and others, said, listen, we have no money to pay you. You know, we don't know if we can get back on our feet. So we don't even know if we can pay you for this work that you're doing now. And they say, that's okay. If you can pay us, you pay us. Otherwise, we, you know, we want to give it our best shot. So over the next 
a few weeks as this was going on, this became a bit of a story, as you can imagine. And sure. the bankers, you know, bankers who had funded them came around and they said, wow, there's something different about this business. Right? So they decided to double their line of credit, even though they really were not credit worthy by any normal no, standard. By the virtue of the fact they had no assets. Yeah. And so, and then the suppliers came around and they said, wow, this is, this is incredible. We've never seen anything like this. Guess what? So we're going to restock you on, on, on long-term credit. Hmm. Right. And we're going to write off some of this loss, which money that you still owed us. Right. Because we think, you know, we believe in you and we believe in what you're trying to do here. So they took care of all the stakeholders, and in the end, the stakeholders took care yes. of them. Yes, and even the you know family and friends who had invested, they said, you know, we're going to reinvest and double down on what we had invested because what you've created here obviously is something powerful. Mm-hmm. People started organizing music concerts to raise money. I mean, where do you see, <laughs> you know, this is a for-profit business. Right? This right. is not the Red Cross. Right. Where do you see an outpouring of those kinds of energies on behalf of saving a private company? You know, you don't see that unless you're doing something truly special. And it created in the owners and founders of the company a deep sense of not only gratitude, but uh, a sort of obligation or humility to say, wow, we better be worthy of this. People are, you know, giving us so much uh, love and uh, care. We can never do anything to, um, you know, to be unworthy of that in the future. So we have to make sure we take care of our people. So that really cemented the idea of stakeholders in their mind and the power of, as John had asked the question, can you build a business on love and care and not fear and stress? Most businesses are built on fear and stress. That's how we think people need to be motivated, right? That's how they work hard. Well, why can't you love what you do and love the people you work with and love your customers and have that energy going in the business? And that's really what they tried to do. And it showed through this Memorial Day flood experience that what they were doing was actually working. And that sort of became now a foundational story for that company to grow to where it has grown. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. Thanks for for sharing it. Our guest today has been uh, Dr. Raj Sisodia. Raj, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your willingness to uh, dive in and work hard. We are all very much looking forward to the release of this book, Everybody Matters, and uh, I look forward, and I'm going to send you, on the day that it becomes uh, one of the New York Times bestsellers, I'm, I'm going to send you an email and uh, tell you that I predicted it first. Thank you so much, Jay. All right, thank you, Raj. It. Thank you. Again, the Great Minds series podcast is brought to you by Innoversity, a creative, storytelling, and online training company. Big brains, great stories. Let Inversity tell your story today. Thanks for listening to the Great Mind Series podcast. I'm Jerry Zanstra, and make it a great day.